Welcome. Uh, you are listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, I am talking with Alex West. Alex is a philologist and historian with expertise in the early history of maritime Southeast Asia. And I have actually learned a great deal um, in the past couple of years from his Twitter threads and blog posts focusing on Asia during the medieval period. He currently lives and works in Lisbon, Portugal, and shares his knowledge on his Patreon. And I will be sharing a link to that in the show notes for sure. His doctoral dissertation, which is an edition of the manuscript we're going to be talking about today, won an Erasmus Dissertation Prize, which is the highest award for a PhD thesis in the Netherlands. Welcome, Alex. I'm really happy to have you on and to talk to you and to learn more about a manuscript culture that I actually don't know anything about. Yeah, happy to be here. Obviously, this is quite a niche thing that most people listening to this probably don't know anything about going by the previous episodes, which are all... Yeah based on European manuscripts. Mm -hmm. um, but the manuscript I'm going to be talking about today is in the Bodleian Library, and the shelf mark is uh, MSJAVB3R. Um, but it's probably better just to refer to it by the name that has been given to the text that the manuscript contains. It only contains one text, and that text is called uh, Bujanga Manik. Um, and it's the story of an ascetic who travels around Java and Bali, which are now in the Republic of Indonesia, uh, in the 15th century, the late 15th century. And it was probably composed, the text was composed in the 1470s or 1480s. That's where I would probably put it. Bodleian suggests a little bit later, around 1500. Uh, I don't really agree with that, but definitely it could not have been written after the uh, Portuguese conquest of Malacca in 1511, because Malacca features quite prominently in the text as a sort of interesting foreign place, uh, and in, indeed as a destination of one of the ships that is described in the text. But we don't hear anything about any Portuguese people. The crews of the ships are all local. They're all from island Southeast Asia. So it's Java in the 1470s or around there. And Java, of course, is a very interesting island. It is the most populous island in the world at the moment. I don't know if that was the case in the Middle Ages. But about 145 million people live there today. So more oh people gosh. live there than live in Japan or in Russia, and we hear so much about those places and we hear almost nothing really. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, yeah, but information normally gets that response. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Indonesia actually as a whole is the fourth biggest country in the world by population after China, India, the United States. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a place that people don't know very much about. We kind of ignore it on a global scale, which I, I find really kind of baffling. But uh, we don't have a huge number of manuscripts from Java in this period. We really don't have very many at all. I think from before the 16th century, we can kind of count them, not on two hands, but hands and feet. Mm -hmm. um, the oldest manuscript from Java is probably from 1334. That's the date that is in the colophon of the manuscript. Uh, we're talking about a place that's quite hard to know about, basically, even though it has this huge population today and probably had a very big population in the past. It's not a place that is, you know, easily understood, easily unlocked. And there aren't a lot of popular histories out there that people can read uh, about Indonesia in general, and certainly in this period. That's one of the things that makes Bujangamanik such an interesting text. Um, but I should probably give some information about what language it is in, actually. Uh, the language is, is Old Sundanese. 
um, which is, I think, unbelievably obscure. There is no textbook for old Sundanese. I don't even think there's a good textbook for modern Sundanese, which is a shame because it's spoken by about 36 million people. So it's sort of on, on par with Polish, something like that, in terms of number of speakers. Most of them live in the western third of the island of Java. And that always appears to have been the case. This is where Sundanese, this is the homeland of Sundanese. Mm -hmm. Now it's divided into several Indonesian provinces. The main one being West Java, uh, which is not uh, a contemporary name. We don't find the, the name Java applied to this place, actually, in the period that I'm, that I'm interested in, in the period in which Bujangamanik was written. When they use the term Java, or in local languages, uh, Jawa, in texts like Bujangamanik, they're referring explicitly to the eastern two-thirds of the island. Mm -hmm. uh, where Javanese is spoken, where Javanese people live. Right. Um, so this is in Sundanese, this is in kind of the other language of Java, kind of like Welsh to Great Britain's English. Right. And it, it's interesting. It, it's a very interesting part of the world. It's much harder to find out about than Central and East Java. Uh, we really don't have very many manuscripts from there. Um, and we don't have a huge number of inscriptions. We don't have a huge number of foreign accounts either until the early 16th century. It's really kind of a mysterious place. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was a kingdom. It appears to have been a kingdom, a sort of cohesive place that was ruled by a king. That seems to have been the case, mm -hmm. certainly in the late 15th century. And when the Portuguese uh, sort of conquistadores first arrived in the early 16th century, they described it as being a kingdom, a kingdom called Sunda, which is where the name Sundanese comes from. Right, got it. And this seems to have been a kingdom all the way from somewhere in western central Java all the way up to uh, the Sunda Strait, which is between Java and Sumatra. So basically from Krakatoa all the way to somewhere in central Java. Um, probably, actually, when the Portuguese arrived, one of the biggest kingdoms in Java uh, in terms of land area, but we don't really know about population size. So right. that's kind of the context in which Budangamanik is written. It's written in this kingdom. The people in this kingdom appear to have been, this is a bit controversial, but they appear to have been sort of Hindus. Uh, a lot of Sundanese people don't really like it when you use that term, but uh, that appears to be broadly speaking the case. There were people who were strongly influenced by Sanskrit culture from India right. and also sort of by proxy, by Javanese proxy as well. So a lot of the the, sort of the religious texts that we have from, from Sunda in this period are actually in Old Javanese, which is the kind of the other big language. Right. Um, and indeed, uh, Java features quite prominently, that is to say, the Javanese-speaking parts of Java feature quite prominently in Bujangaman. The basic narrative of the text is that it, there's a young man who seems to have been some kind of prince or nobleman. And he's living in a place called Pakanchilan, which is modern-day Bogor, which is just south of Jakarta, which is the, currently still the capital of Indonesia. It's about 40 kilometers south, probably, I guess. Um, we're not 100% certain on, on where Pakanchilan was, but it was around there. Anyway, so he's, he's living in this kind of capital place, and right at the beginning of the poem, he decides to leave. He wants to perfect himself spiritually. He's not very interested in worldly things. And so he just starts walking. And most of the text is just 
a description of where he walks and how mm-hmm. he walks. It's just a series of, of verbs in the first person. It's all narrated or mostly narrated in the first person. I went here. I went there. Mm-hmm. I went up to there. I went down to there. It's it's It sounds very boring, but actually, of course, from a historical perspective, it's very interesting. Right. On his first trip, he goes to central Java, where they speak Javanese. And he goes to probably, we don't really know, it's referred to later on in the text. Um, but he probably went to Marapi Marbabu, which is this uh, big volcano. It's really two volcanoes, two peaks north of the city of Jogjakarta, in, which is a, a special administrative region in Indonesia. But anyway, it's in central Java, geographically. Mm-hmm. So he probably went there and he probably studied with some hermits and some rishis and some sages and they taught him some spiritual things. Mm-hmm. Then it says that he got homesick and he missed his mother. And so he goes, yeah, so he goes That's north. very sweet. I like that he missed his mother. <laughs> yeah, we don't get a lot of, it's not a very emotional poem in a way. Um, uh-huh. Or at least, okay, so... How we feel about him missing his mother is is kind of important, actually. But anyway, so he goes to the, the north coast of Java, he goes to Pamalang, and he then takes a ship back to Kalapa, which is the old name for Jakarta. And he describes this ship in some detail, how it left the port, uh, with cannons being fired and music being played and songs being sung, oh, wow. which is all very interesting, again, from a historical perspective. He arrives back in, in Kalapa, in uh, what is now Jakarta, and he walks to... Pakanchilan uh, to Bogor, and uh, when he gets there, a young woman falls in love with him. She's impressed by his long fingernails because it shows obviously that he doesn't do any manual labor. Basically, right. he's impressed by his whole bearing, by the fact that he can speak Javanese. She's very impressed by that. This is a sign of you know privilege and and so on. And then she convinces probably her mother, but we're not entirely sure. Some people interpret it as. Uh, the young lady being a servant of this woman who who is in the palace at Bakanchilan. And she convinces this woman to basically get some stuff together, some gifts together, to go and take them over to Bujangabanik's. Uh, well, we don't, he's not called that at the time, but okay, it doesn't matter. To the, the young ascetic's uh, mother's house in order to sort of negotiate a marriage. Mm-hmm. She brings all these things over. They're all labeled, they're also enumerated in, in the poem. Uh, all sorts of foreign incenses and perfumes, and also a kris, which is a a sort of wavy-bladed dagger. Mm -hmm. It's a thrusting weapon. It's very important in in Javanese sort of myth and, uh, well, all sorts of things. Anyway, very interesting uh, item. And so she carries all these things over to Bujangamanik's house, and his Bujangamanik's mother tries to convince him to go along with this and uh, get married to the young woman. And he says, no. And he gets very angry. He says that his mother broke all the taboos, that her mother had broken all the taboos as well, and that made her so wayward and so unable to be controlled. Why is she disrupting my (laughs) spiritual progress? Right. Um, And so he, he just chucks all that in her face, says, bring all that stuff back to the palace, and he decides to leave. And he tells her that, this is the last time we're ever going to see each other. I'm going to go and find a place to die. Oh, my gosh. To cast my body away, uh, basically. Just throw it out to sea. And he says that he's going to go to a place called Balumbungan, which is uh, what has a different name today. Um, but it's the eastern salient of Java. So the extreme east of Java. He's going to go as far as he can go. 
And that's basically what he does next. And so he sort of works his way through Java. We hear the names of lots of different places, particularly um, some mountains and volcanoes and villages and rivers, all sorts of different things. It's not clear exactly how he travels at every point, but it's probably mostly on foot. Mm-hmm. And he gets to this place in, in East Java, in the extreme east of Java, in the Eastern Salient, and he sets up a little hermitage for himself. And while he's there, he's then visited by another young woman who says, um, would you mind if I joined you? Uh, you know, you'd make a great elder brother. That's sort of how she frames it. Right. And then he says, well, I've brought this book along with me. It's called Instructions of the Teacher, Siksaguru. And in this book, it says that men and women are like palm fibers and flame. And if you put them together, oh. they, they will ignite. Right. So it's probably best if I leave. That's basically how he frames it. So then he goes down to the coast. He takes a ship to Bali. And Bali is not described in any great detail because he seems to have hated it. This is the, the oh. story. Gets yeah. to Bali discovers there's so many people there, more people live in Bali than live in Java or live in uh, Malaya, which is the name for Southern Sumatra, which is also an important political entity at the time. So he doesn't spend very long there, spends about a year, and then he goes back to Java. What's interesting about that section is that we have descriptions of the two ships on which he travels. Mm-hmm. And we have descriptions of the crew and what they do. And the, the size of the third ship is also very important. It's described as a jong which uh, entered English ultimately as the word junk, which now oh, we think right. for a, a Chinese ship. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in those days, it was a name for a really huge uh, Southeast Asian ship, usually made of teak, and probably among the biggest medieval ships that were around mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, bigger than anything in Europe. But this is kind of theoretical because we don't really know. We're relying mostly on Portuguese descriptions of these ships. Most of the ones that right. have been... Uh, studied from shipwrecks, are not that enormous. They're pretty big, but they're not as enormous as described by Portuguese sources. The one in Bujangamanic is probably about 40-something metres long, which is quite a big ship it's for a big, uh, yeah. period. I don't know what that is in feet, sorry. But <laughs> you Google it if, if you're not clear. Um, it would be about 120 feet, I think. There you go, yeah. It's, yeah, about, it's, about, it's three, about three times, yeah. Three. So it's a big ship, so it's described as being quite wide and it's going kind of a, on a very long distance voyage to the, I think, the western side of Sumatra, if I remember correctly. So this probably reflects um, the ascetic's, Budangamanic spiritual progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he, he starts off on these fairly small boats going between, uh, you know, parts of Java, going back to Kalapa and from uh, Balambuman to Bali. And then he ends up on this really, really big vessel, which shows that, yes, he's finally made it. He is a great scholar. He is a proper ascetic. And that is how he's treated by the ship's captain as well. Yeah. So the ships are like a metaphor for his his, his spiritual growth. That's it. Well, that, that's how yeah. I interpret it anyway. That's my... Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is supported by another uh, old Sundanese text called the uh, Shasana Mahaguru, which also uses ships as a metaphor mm. for various spiritual stages of, of development. So he ends up back in Java, and now his plan is to find a proper place to die. This was always his plan, but now he's at the level where he can fully, you know, he can meditate his way to death in right. the right way. <laughs> and so he goes to various places. He goes to the, the capital of uh, Java at the time, or the kingdom that was 
biggest in uh, Central and East Java at that time. And this is one of the ways that we can date the poem. Uh, the kingdom in, in Java at the time was called Majapahit. And it appears to have been destroyed for all the intents and purposes in the 1480s. And the last inscriptions are around 1486. Mm -hmm. But it may have sort of survived as a rump state until quite a bit later. Um, it's not very clear from Portuguese sources that that's the case. And we don't have any other inscriptions after the 1480s, so we really don't know. Anyway, he visits this place called Majapahit, which is the name of the capital and also the name of the kingdom. Um, and it's full of people. It doesn't describe it in any great detail, but still quite interesting. From there, he heads to uh, a sort of sanctuary, really, a temple site, which is described as being venerated by the Javanese, presumably as the premier kind of temple. We know it today as uh, Chandi Panataran, which is also in, in East Java. And at the time, it was known as Rabot Palah. This is the name that it has in Bujangamanik and also in a few other sources. And at this place, he, uh, Bujangamanik, I mean, he sits down and he studies some manuscripts. He learns some language. He improves his Javanese. He can translate. It says explicitly, he can translate from Javanese, mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing, because we do actually have some uh, old Sumerese manuscripts, which appear to have been translations mm -hmm. of old Javanese texts as well. Uh, then he gets very annoyed. A, a lot of people come and visit this place. It's very popular. There's always people turning up with offerings of gold. They're noisy, and they're not really developed people. They're not spiritually developed people. They're just a rabble. So he gets annoyed with that, and he runs off. This isn't the appropriate place to die, it seems. Right. Uh, so he keeps going to the west. He ends up back in Sunda, back in what is now West Java. He finds a mountain in... Well, it's actually a volcano, and it was once a very, very big volcano. Java is one of the most volcanic islands in the world, as well as the most populous. Mm -hmm. And this volcano still exists. Uh, it definitely still exists, but in the, in the 1770s, it exploded. Ah, uh -huh. So uh, the summit of the volcano no longer exists. We can no longer go and see the view that Bujangamanik had from the top of this, of this mountain from this volcano. Well, we, we wouldn't be able to have this view anyway because it's clearly a, a, a fundamentally a spiritual view of the world. He goes up to the top of, of this mountain, it's called Papandayan, and he can see every mountain in Java from the top, which is obviously oh, possible. Wow. Java is about right. the size of England, more or less, a little bit bigger. Yeah. Uh, so he's looking up, he sees all these mountains, he sees all the villages, and he names the mountains, and he names the villages that are connected to them. Mm -hmm. And then after that, he has a vision of an even bigger world. And he can see Delhi, for example, in India. He can see China. He can see the Banda Islands in East Indonesia, which produced all of the world's nutmeg and mace, which is very interesting that that features as a prominent place. These are extremely tiny islands, but still mm -hmm. they feature in the poem. This seems to be the kind of pinnacle of his spiritual development, of his understanding of the world. Right. And... It's interesting that it's rep represented in the form of worldly knowledge, that by knowing the world, he, he is demonstrating his spiritual knowledge. That is interesting, yeah. So then he comes down from the mountain and he establishes another hermitage. He spends 10 years there and then he dies. Mm -hmm. And he dies without any illness. He ascends bodily to heaven, kind of. 
but kind of not. Everything is stripped away. Right. His soul is, it was described as dissolving into the void. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, then we get a lacuna, and there are two uh, leaves missing from the manuscript. And we rejoin the narrative with Bujangamanik in heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not really in heaven. He's actually, he's kind of at the, the gates to heaven. And the right. door guardian there basically says, who are you? What are you doing here? Uh, you're not allowed in. Why would we let you in? Oh, no. He says, well, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not going to call anyone my, to my defense. People, as you know, are terrible. They're always just sinning. They're all drawn to sin. They're just dreadful creatures. And, uh, you know, among if you took a thousand of them, you wouldn't find one who was trustworthy. So there's no point in even calling these people to, to my defense. Instead, I'm going to call to my defense the sacred moonlight, the sacred daylight, the earth, oh. the elemental <laughs> stuff. They know who I am. They know, exactly. And, and they're so, the ones that matter. <laughs> I mean, I love it. people, this is the yeah. idea. And so the, the door guardian says, yes, I can see that. You are more fragrant than opium. Oh my! <laughs> you know, sweeter than sandalwood. All, this, all these kind of things, which is also very interesting, uh, just mm-hmm. in terms of the material stuff that he refers to there. Yeah, because uh, there's also a reference to masoid bark, which is uh, a kind of fragrance that comes from the west of New Guinea, mm. uh, which is very interesting. It's one of the earliest references to a, an export commodity from the island of New Guinea, anywhere. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Anyway, so the door guardian lets him in. He goes into heaven, and it's amazing. It's nice. It's all sort of fabulous. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The road is made of iron and, you know, these kind of things. Everything is silver. Everything is shining. There are columns. There's all sorts of nice things. And he goes in there, and he starts to, to wash himself and get ready to, you know, enter the real heaven, to get into, like, the, the good stuff. And, unfortunately, again, there's a lacuna. We're missing another leaf there. And when we rejoin the text, he's basically in some kind of parade. I don't really know what's going on there. Um, but he's sort of riding a white yak, which is all bejeweled and covered in all sorts of nice things. And there are banners floating in the breeze. And they're described as being like great egrets, like these sort of white birds mm-hmm. flying. And there's lightning in the distance and there's a rainbow. And, and then the text ends and that's it. Oh, and that's the end. And he's in heaven. He's in heaven, and he's kind of a god now. That's great. I'm I'm it's happy so for boring, for him. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm guessing since you mentioned those lacuna, yeah, uh, and we don't know what the text is, that makes it I'm just sound like this is the only copy of this text. Oh, it is. We yeah. have. Yeah, yeah. This is that. Um, do you do you know, like? who wrote it not necessarily like the name of the person but what was the purpose of of this text like it sounds weird and amazing but like why would why would somebody write that do you know yeah i don't know um (laughs) basically uh it's interesting because it's the form of the text it's it's kind of poetry it's quite difficult to draw a line between poetry and prose in Old Sundanese, but there are, broadly speaking, prose texts and there are some poetic texts. And the poetic ones are very formulaic. And you can compare them to a modern oral tradition from Sunda, which is called Pantun. And that's basically a kind of storytelling 
that takes place overnight, basically. So you start after, Sunday is now, by and large, a Muslim part of the world. Most people there are Muslims. Uh, they started converting to Islam in the 16th century, so after the Jangamanic was written. So you'd start after evening prayers and you'd listen to this whole story overnight until morning prayers. That's kind of the idea. Okay. And Bujangabhanik, a lot of the text in it, or at least some of the text in it, can be compared to modern Pantun texts as they've been recorded by, uh, well, oral historians and these kind of people. Mm -hmm. It suggests that the text was read aloud, uh, which is almost certainly the case anyway. The other thing is that the, the manuscript itself, I should probably start getting into that really. This is all about the manuscript, it's not really about the text. Okay, yeah. so the, the manuscript is, is well, it consists of palm leaves. Right. So it's written on palm leaves, and they're about 40 centimeters long, about four centimeters wide, so they're quite small. And they're right. contained within a wooden box, which is broken slightly. Uh, it's quite a cute little manuscript, actually. If, you, if you're used to, you know, sort of big codices and then you come across this little wooden box, it really does seem, it's a very bijou kind of manuscript. Yes. Has it been digitized? Will we yeah, have photos? Has. Okay, yes. great. Yes. So I'll put, I'll put some photos in the... Oh, sure. Yeah. In there. Yeah, yeah you won't... Hmm. So you shouldn't go in there expecting like a sort of très richeur kind of uh, yes. you know, beauty. <laughs> I did take, I took a peek. It's, mm. it's... Do you want to describe sort of how it, so we know it's small and it's written on palm oh. leaves, which are sort of, um, uh, well, they're sort of, um, I, I'm trying to think of what color, how I would describe mm. the color of them. The so kind of, it depends actually, there, there are different colors, but it's sort of beige, gold, Yeah, beige, brownish. that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like beigey brown. Yeah, beigey yeah. brown. And yeah, the, the letters are actually carved into the leaf. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. And on a lot of uh, manuscripts from Southeast Asia, they would be carved into the leaf, and then a mixture of oil and charcoal would be, or sometimes water and charcoal, we sort of run over the, the leaf or rubbed into the leaf so that the letters would stand out a lot more. Right. That has not been done with the Bujangamanic manuscript. Um, it's just plain. So it's literally just cut into the leaf, and that's how you've got to read it, which isn't that difficult, actually. Um, it, it's yeah. not a very complex script. Um, I, I would find it quite... Well, uh, yeah, okay. I find it quite readable. Uh, <laughs> you know the language. That helps. That yeah, helps if you know the language and you know the script. <laughs> obviously, I worked on this for uh, quite some time. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so it's, it's not a very glamorous kind of manuscript. And it wasn't a glamorous kind of manuscript, even in Sunda at the time. Uh, we know from some other texts that... Manuscripts could be divided into two types. On the one hand, you've got um, manuscripts that use lontar leaves and that have the letters cut in with a knife. Mm -hmm. And those are for public performances. Those are just crap manuscripts, basically. You read them aloud to the people so that they can understand. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these nicer manuscripts, and they're written on gobang leaves, a different species of palm. And they're written using ink. And there are a few of these out there, including uh, some that were collected at the same time as the Bujangamanic manuscript um, in West Java, which, by, by the way, uh, it was picked up in West Java in 1627, or at least it was donated to the library then. Right. Um, so it has been in, in uh, Oxford for almost 400 years at this point. That, 
is sort of amazing. Which may explain its survival, by the way. Uh, These things don't tend to last very long. And Java is about six degrees off the equator, south of the equator. So it's very hot, it's very humid, and uh, something like fall apart. Yeah. Or they get eaten by insects as well, of which there are quite a few. So it's kind of a not a really great, beautiful presentation manuscript. It's one for reading aloud to people. So there was probably a kind of didactic purpose to this particular manuscript. It may be that there was a kind of presentation version of Ujangamanik for putting in uh, an archive, which is what these other manuscripts are for. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what we've got. So we can assume that this was intended as a kind of didactic thing for some people. Um, we don't really know who. It could have been for young monks, would-be ascetics, people undergoing some kind of spiritual training, it's possible. It's not a very, I mean, it's it's not the liveliest story. It doesn't have any <laughs> dragons in it, really. It doesn't have like, you know, sword fights and stuff. It doesn't even have romance, the guy. You know, he, yeah, he shuts against. that right down, yeah. yeah. Not an incel, but a, a volcel, I guess you would call yeah. it. Completely voluntary celibacy yeah. from the get-go, just wants to work on his uh, spiritual development. So it probably wasn't intended for just anyone to hear. Right. But who knows? So. Yeah. It's hard to say since, no, since he obviously didn't leave you a note. That would be nice if he, if he left, if he left a note. On the Um, other hand, uh, by the way, there is a a kind of marginal note in there. There aren't, we don't usually find this with um, manuscripts from Indonesia. People don't usually comment on them. I don't know, that's, it's just not something people really do, I guess. Or at least I haven't really come across them. But somebody has put a little note in there. It's quite hard to read, and the hand is unpracticed, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've put a little note in there. I mentioned that when Bujangamanik rejects the second woman, he says that when you get palm fibers and flame together, you know, mm-hmm. this will happen. Um, and somebody has put a little note above that saying, yes, I've experienced this. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. And then there's another thing which is a bit harder to interpret, but it's about flames. And, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Clearly a metaphor for lust. So somebody must have read it and said, yep, been there. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. I, I kind of like that. I like, I like the humanity of that. That Like, yeah, somebody read this and they were like, I'm a human. <laughs> I got that feeling. Yeah. Which is which is pretty fun. Yeah, um, this is one of the discoveries that I made um, when looking at the manuscript because it had been published or it had been published before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the text was first studied by a guy called Jacobus Nordown, who was a Dutch scholar, and he published it in two thousand six. Well, he didn't because unfortunately he was deceased by that point. But uh, some collaborators worked on it. They turned it into a nice little edition with a couple of other old Sundanese poems that Nordan had also worked on. And it's a very, it's a kind of a landmark study. It's called Three Old Sundanese Poems, and it's a very good way to get into old Sundanese. We don't really have, as I said, we don't really have a kind of introductory textbook to this language, but we do have a nice glossary and some grammar notes in that book. Um, unfortunately, because Nordan was, was dead, the edition isn't really accurate in some ways. The text itself is quite accurate. But the arrangement is completely wrong. The foliation is completely wrong. And little things like these marginal notes, which are quite interesting and, and really stand out actually in the digitization, they don't appear in, in the edition. 
So that was something. What else did you um, did you discover when, as as you were re- working through the text and looking at the manuscript? Uh, well, oh, uh, well, I heard quite a lot. It was my PhD project, um, but it was your PhD project. You you worked on it for years, and you won a very prestigious award yeah, so for it. it which it congratulations! Good, I guess, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I discovered that uh, there are actually four leaves missing, minimum, from the manuscript. Uh, one of the things that's not in the uh, 2006 transcription, which is really what it is, or transliteration of the text, one of the things that's not in there uh, is the fact that there are numerals in the left side margin of the versos of every leaf after the first one. Mm-hmm. So the numbers start on the second leaf, on the verso, with number one. Um, those are not mentioned at all in the 2006 work, but if you pay attention to the numbers, then you can see that actually there are two leaves missing at, at a certain point where Nordown had uh, thought there was only one. Right. This kind of thing. So, uh, you know, little codicological things. Those are kind of the things that I, I found out. Yeah, uh, in addition that's to a pretty that. important that there's numbers on the leaves. Like that's... Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. yeah. I mean, it is important because it helps us obviously know what, what the arrangement of the text should have been what we're actually missing. It turns out we're missing probably about 55 lines of poetry because mm-hmm. of this uh, additional leaf that's missing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, my work on Bujangamanic is extremely comprehensive, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it covers everything. I start with a big introduction, but then get directly into describing, get right into the manuscript and the codicology and the things I've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a few sketches in there that I did uh, of the manuscript itself. So you can see kind of the damage to the box, which is not clear in the digitization. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the box, the box was original? Yes. Was it, yeah. So yeah, it was what it was originally housed in. So it's probably teak. Yeah. These things are mostly teak. Uh, there are sort of a few different woods you could use for this purpose that are found. Because in Bali, they still make palm leaf manuscripts to this day. Uh, they don't really make them in, in uh, Java very much, although in Sunda, some sort of Sundanese nationalists and, or, well, they're not really nationalists, but people who are very interested in Sundanese heritage, uh, some of them do try to revive these things and make palm leaf manuscripts again. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there's a living tradition in Bali. So we kind of kind of use that to study how these things might have been made. Right. So the box is probably made of teak, and it's been lacquered on the outside, with black lacquer. It's sort of broadly rectangular, and there's very minimal uh, decoration, and it's just sort of well, an indentation around the edge, and that's it mm-hmm. on all four sides. Uh, it's a bit has snapped off, but okay. Probably happened before it ended up in the Bodleian, by the way, because the other mm-hmm. manuscripts in the same collection are in perfect condition. Right. There's also quite a bit of scuffing to the outside of the box. So, again, that's probably damage sustained while in, in Java. Uh, there's a kind of tongue and groove joint that goes around the inside of the box, and that's what holds it together. Oh, right. Yep. So, you basically have a stack of leaves, and originally they would be tied together with cords through the middle or through the edges. There are three holes. Yeah. This was my next question about how, how the codicology of this manuscript worked, because usually, so codicology for listeners who don't know the lingo, codicology is sort of 
the word that we use to describe the 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 way books are put together physically. It's like a physical thing, and so the manuscripts that we usually talk about on the show are European manuscripts, which are made of paper or parchment, and you make them by having sheets and you fold them, and then you make little these little booklets that we call choirs or gatherings, and then you sew those together, and that's how you make the book, and that's what a book looks like. So this is a very very different kind of thing because you have these the little palm leaves but they were you were just taught i'm sorry i totally interrupted you Um, but they were they are tied together in different ways so they're not just loose leaves Um, well now they are i think now they are right but originally they would have been but originally yeah they would have probably had a cord through some part of the well of the leaf there are three holes but it was probably through the central hole which is not exactly central uh, it's slightly offset so that the leaves will actually sort of spiral apart. Oh. If you just sort of pull them, uh, it mm-hmm. sort of make it easier to turn them. I see, yeah. The text is written from left to right. So you read all the way along. There are four rows of text on each side of each leaf, except the first one, which is blank on the recto. So you start reading from the verso of the first leaf. You read from left to right all the way across four lines, and then you turn the leaf like that. From the bottom right. up, up like you're sort of flipping it, flipping like it you're up, flipping it up like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if you're holding it, like thumbs at the bottom of the leaf, index fingers at the top, then you rotate it so that your thumbs yeah. end up at the top, and then you start reading again from the top left. Right. And yeah, so they would have been strung through the middle, probably. Uh, that seems to have come apart quite a while ago. Because mm-hmm. the order of the leaves is now completely confused. Well, it's not completely confused, but it is quite wrong. Um, and this was when the manuscript was digitized, actually exchanged a few emails with the Bodleian to try and get it in a something like appropriate reading order. Right. Um, yeah. And that's a case where those numbers on the leaves would be very helpful. Yeah. And the other thing is that the, the Bodleian curators obviously cannot be expected to know old Sundanese. This is no. quite a niche skill. <laughs> Um, so the numbers, some Bodleian curator seems to have added numbers in pencil on the side oh. of, the, of the leaf. And quite often they correspond with the old Sundanese, but not uh, in every case. And the, the first one, the very beginning of the text, is labeled with a question mark. So, um, which, yeah, again, like, I couldn't do any better with a language I didn't know. So, okay, you know, not a problem. Yeah, sometimes you, you know... Yes, as a curator who works with manuscripts that I don't understand. Yes, but I try to I try to keep my hands off in that case because it is, you know, so yeah. different, so different from yeah. what I'm used to working with. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I should say there were, there were like thirty surviving leaves. There probably were at least thirty-four originally, and there's definitely a little gap in the box. You can see where the other leaves would have fitted in. Yeah. Um, what else can we say about that, really? I think it maybe temper expectations. If you're looking at this manuscript, you're not going to think that it's incredibly beautiful, but it does have something when you actually see it in person. It's a very different experience to see it on screen in the digitization and to actually see it you know, in its little cute little box and to imagine what it must originally have looked like. Uh, it, you know, which is probably quite nice with this black lacquer on the outside, you know, a nice little elegant box, not over-decorated, just... Yeah. So, yeah. That, 
That's nice. So I have a I have a question going back to something you mentioned a few times uh, earlier, and this I don't think that this actually has anything to do with the manuscript. I'm just curious. Yeah. You referenced a few times inscriptions. You were saying we don't have any inscriptions past this time, and I was just wondering if you would say more about what you mean by inscriptions and why there would be inscriptions at some times and not other times. Yeah, oh, well, that's, that's quite a big one. Okay, so uh, there are, broadly speaking, two kinds of inscriptions that we find in uh, Java. Because of the heat and humidity, we don't have a lot of manuscripts. We don't have a lot of things written on any kinds of organic materials in general. Really. Mm -hmm. So the bulk of the old Javanese corpus of texts that we know are from before the 16th century, that date to before the 16th century, the vast bulk of them are stone inscriptions and copper plate inscriptions. Those are the two. Oh. Kind okay. of so you get these copper plates, and they're a little bit bigger than palm leaves, but it's kind of the same thing. Flat plate written usually on one or both sides. Uh, this is an idea that comes from India. So it's, a lot of this stuff is coming from India in terms of uh, manuscript culture and things like that. Palm leaves, of course, the same species of palm mm -hmm. also used in, in India. And in mainland Southeast Asia as well. Yeah, I know in our collection, our collection, my employer's collection, we actually have a, I, I don't work with them, but we have a very large number of, I want to say Thai manuscripts mm -hmm. that are, um, that are palm leaf manuscripts. Yeah. Is yeah. The oldest like, one from the mainland, I think is from the 1470s. So actually it's kind of contemporary with Bujangamani, but it's a small fragment, I think in Pali, not in a local language. The so Pali is a, is a, well, it's a language of Buddhist scripture in mm -hmm. mainland Southeast Asia. And also Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, what was I saying? Yeah, the stone inscriptions. Okay, so we don't have a lot of either copper plate or stone inscriptions from Sunda. We have a small number. They're usually inscribed on andesite, which is a volcanic stone. It's very hard. It, I mean, it lasts quite a long time. It's pretty good stuff for this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it means if no inscriptions are being written. It might indicate that a polity has come to an end and there's no longer any state sponsorship for this kind of thing. So nobody's, you know, putting these uh, inscriptions out there. But uh, it's quite hard to know, really. Uh, very often we just don't find any, just as a default state. And sometimes you suddenly get quite a few issued right. by the same king, usually. Right. And of course, lack, just because there aren't inscriptions there doesn't mean they weren't made. It could be that they were made and they just didn't survive, uh, which is yeah. the case for any kind of written, you know, any kind of written culture kind of yeah. works like that. Yeah. And also something like stone, you know, you can reuse in construction. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, you know, there's a religious change that happens in the 16th century uh, across Java. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people, why would people particularly respect you know, a Hindu inscription. Right. Of course, people did, and they continued to, but you, you can understand that some people would not, and they would prefer to reuse thing, these things or scrub them away and just get rid of them. Right. Um, so I don't know. Like, there are a handful of inscriptions from West Java. Mm -hmm. Like, it's literally a handful. Um, and they're mostly from a place called Kawali, which is somewhat difficult to get to. Actually, it's not that bad. I don't know, I took a, I hired a driver and <laughs> drove over there. It wasn't actually that bad at all. It's by a primary school. Oh, is it a secondary school? I don't know. It's by a school anyway. It's an archaeological site um, 
it has a little attendant there. I think it costs something like 3,000 rupiah to get in, which is not very expensive at all. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of wander through the site, which is now really overgrown, massive trees yeah. growing there, um, this sort of thing. But there has been some archaeological work, and the inscriptions are in little cages to prevent them mm-hmm. from being damaged in any way. Yeah. Uh, it, really, I can't remember exactly how many there are, but something like seven, something like that. Really not very many. Oh, cool. Yeah. But that sounds like that sounds like fun. So they're not they're not in a museum. Well, they're sort of in a museum, but they're yeah. not like in a museum building. They're just sitting where they were, where they have been, I guess, where they were. I don't think they're they exactly there. in situ. I think they're, uh, they have been moved to some extent somehow, okay. somewhere. Um, At some yeah. point, yeah. But most of the, well, actually there are inscriptions all over the world and some of them were taken by the British when they mm-hmm. conquered Java from, from the Dutch in 1811 yep. uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, well, Dutch-French. Um, yeah, Lord Minto, I believe, is one of the people who carried off a stone, or at least a, a stone was carried off to his estate in Scotland. So it's a very important um, stone, inscription stone in Old Javanese that's in Scotland for some reason. Or it, it might actually have started to come back, I don't know. But definitely there were negotiations be- between the Lord's... Yeah descendants and uh, people in Indonesia from bring the stone to repatriate it. Yeah. And there's also one in Calcutta from the same period and for the same reason. The British just brought it over there. Yeah, they they did that. They did that a lot. Yeah. Sort of went in and were like, I like that. I'm going to take it. Yeah, you have to, also have wonder, to deal with, you know, with the manuscript of Bujangamanik, how it ended up in England um, mm-hmm. in the 1620s. Yeah. So don't really know. Uh, the guy who brought it over was uh, a merchant from the Isle of Wight called Andrew James, and he donated a few manuscripts from, that he picked up in Java. Two of them, I think, are in Javanese, and one of them is Old Sundanese. How he got them, why he had them, I have really no idea. It's possible that they were kind of looted from somewhere in uh, Sunda, not by the British, not by Europeans, but possibly by some of the invading Islamic forces from central Java and East Java who attacked Sunda in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. That is possible. Um, but, I mean, that's speculation. I really don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, it means that kind of a surprising amount, actually, of stuff, interesting heritage, interesting things, manuscripts, inscriptions, statues mm-hmm. from Java is, is in Europe, is in uh, yeah. Britain and is in the Netherlands. So. Yeah. So this is a this is maybe a good segue for my 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 question where I'm going to channel Lindsay, my co-host, who unfortunately wasn't able to be here with us uh, today. Um, but she would want to know the story of how you got interested in the work that led you to working with this manuscript. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't really remember anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. I think I've always been interested, well, as an adult, at least, I've always been interested in places that are difficult to find out about. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I couldn't really understand devoting your time to the study of the French language, because right. that just seems a bit, it's too easy, isn't it? You can just easily find out about French. Yeah. It's not a, a compl- this is not a great challenge these days. You could become fluent quite easily. There are all sorts of resources out there. Mm-hmm. And we can know a lot about France, very easy. You can find a pretty good book on French history, French medieval history, in most good bookshops. 
and it would be reasonably good, reasonably accurate, give you you know proper information up front. That is not the case with Java, certainly not before the 16th century. We simply don't have very many good, readable, interesting, you know, well-written guides to the history of that place mm -hmm. and time. Um, there are more sources than for other parts of the world, and more sources than for South America, more sources than for Eastern Indonesia, but still, right. they're not often properly exploited. A lot of the stuff is in Indonesian, or in, in Sundanese even. A lot of the stuff for old Sundanese is, is in the Sundanese language, so that's doubly difficult for anybody outside Indonesia to get into. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a nice challenge. I think that was sort of part of it. Right. You just wanted, you wanted to, to study something that very few other people had and did study. I think that's actually an extremely misguided idea and I should not have done it like that. But anyway, <laughs> no. um, uh, yeah, I, I guess so. I started off in Chinese. That was my BA. So I, I did uh, Chinese at, at university and then I did uh, social anthropology masters a few years later. And that's when I started getting interested in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And originally I was East, interested in Eastern Indonesia where all these spices came from. And it's just a very interesting part of the world. And uh, I don't know, I started reading more about the history of these things um, going way back and reading all kinds of stuff on palm leaf manuscripts and trying to learn a bit of old Javanese and so on. Mm -hmm. And then I came across uh, I came across Bujanga Manik at some point. I can't remember exactly where, but it must have been in some sort of book or other, maybe even on Wikipedia. There's a pretty inaccurate Wikipedia article Oh, on English yeah. Wikipedia that you can read about Bujangamani. Maybe someone will get around to it, it, you know, updating it based on my <laughs> uh, PhD dissertation at some point. I'm not going to do it, but if you, yeah. Yeah. I'll put um, a link in if anybody wants to. Yeah. Just don't trust, just don't, don't read that, I guess, thinking that it's accurate. Well, someone <laughs> put quite a lot of effort into it and it's based on the old stuff, which turns out yeah. not to be true much of it. So. Um, and then I got a copy of the three old Sundanese poems. And then I read it in the Cafe Nero on the High Street in Oxford in one sitting. It's not a very long text. It's about probably originally about 2,000 lines of poetry in eight-syllable lines. Um, so I read it in one sitting and I thought, wow, this is actually really interesting. We can kind of use this to open a window onto mm -hmm. the archipelago as a whole of maritime Southeast Asia, really, in the late 15th century. It's a very interesting period. We don't have a lot of information about it but you can kind of correlate it with Portuguese accounts and all sorts of other things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's the genesis of the project, I suppose. That's where that came from. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. I guess. Um, yeah. So I, I have another, another thing if you, if you are, are up to talking about this and that is um, there's something very hot, I guess you can say, topic in medieval studies uh, over the past number of years has been the rise of the so-called global Middle Ages. Yeah. And that is that we focus too much on Europe. And so let's also bring in, you know, and talk about what was happening in other parts of the world during this period. And the global Middle Ages is the sort of term that has been... Um, that we've sort of adopted to, to talk about this. Yeah. And I know that you have written a couple of blog posts sort of about this. And I'm just, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your thoughts about this, because clearly like you're working in 
the during the medieval period in Europe, you're working in mm-hmm. this area. And what do you what do you what do you think about? Well, it's not just blog posts because I've actually got quite a big section on that in my PhD thesis. Um, oh, great! It's kind of how I frame the discussion of the text in a way, or at least the the commentary after the text, mm-hmm. looking at the things in it, so all the spices and you know ships and all these kind of things. Um, yeah, I, d- I don't really like this global thing particularly mm-hmm. because, well, for a number of reasons. One of them is that a lot of the people who do the kind of global Middle Ages stuff are not actually, or don't seem to be, very interested in learning the languages of people right. outside Europe. So you get this global Middle Ages perspective, which is actually just Europeans looking at other parts of the world very often. And a lot of it is collaborative, and that's nice. It's nice to collaborate with people, certainly, but it's also nice to have a bunch of skills yourself so you can look at the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like the global Middle Ages thing really does that. It doesn't encourage people right. to go out and just learn Chinese. I mean, that's a sort of, I would consider that a kind of entry-level thing. You get a, a, you know, a whole load of different sources, but you get them from a certain perspective. And learning something like Malay would be very interesting, or old Javanese. Mm-hmm. And these things don't seem to come up very often in the global Middle Ages thing, which seems very kind of Northern Hemisphere focused. Right. A lot of it is Europe. Yeah, that's nice. Okay. A bit of Mediterranean, North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, certainly, China, Japan. Mm-hmm. And you don't get a lot outside of that. Right. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that I think the key thing about the world before the 16th century, before 1492 at least, is that it wasn't really global. Mm-hmm in any serious way. There are occasional contacts between the Americas and Afro-Eurasia in the extreme north, in the Arctic. Uh, There was a recent discovery, a couple of years ago anyway, of some Venetian blue glass beads from Murano that were discovered in a mid-15th century context in Alaska. Oh, wow. Which is fascinating. Um, How did they end up there? Very cool. Um, We know that there were Venetian blue glass beads being traded to maritime Southeast Asia and China and so on. So it's not surprising that they would get there, but the idea that they would go through Siberia to Alaska is quite extraordinary. But apart from stuff like that, we don't really have a lot of really global connections. Right. You know, you start to get really global stuff in the 16th century. Like I'm living here in, in Lisbon, and one of the roads near me, or fairly near me, is uh, Avenida Alvarez Cabral, which is named after Pedro Alvarez Cabral, who is considered to be the discoverer of Brazil. Of course, he didn't actually discover Brazil, but he was mm-hmm. the first European to um, make landfall there. And that was in the spring of 1500. Right. So he left Portugal, ended up in Brazil, unintentionally, more or less. He called it the land of the true cross. And he sent a ship back to Portugal with a description written by a guy called Pedro Vaz de Caminha. Uh, this is all in the spring of 1500. And then they went all the way to India. The remaining ships went all the way to India, which was the original plan. Right. After going round Africa, of course. Right. That is a global thing, I think, for the first time in the same year, to go from Europe to America, to the Americas, to Africa, to Asia. Mm-hmm. That never happened before the year 1500. Before. Nobody was right. really able to do that. And I think if you're looking at the period before that, then the kind of key thing is that it wasn't global. We get these global connections for the first time after the 15th century, or at least in the late 15th century. Mm-hmm. And in looking at something like Bujangamanic, it's right at the end there in the 1470s, 1480s. Mm-hmm. And what we have in there, you know, we've got a lot of stuff. It's referring to stuff in the world. It's referring to places that really existed. And they're coming from all over Afro-Eurasia. And, of course, there's nothing from the Americas in there. Right. 
Um, but we've got stuff from Africa. There's opium. And of course, opium is most famously coming from Egypt in this period. Mm -hmm. uh, it's even referred to by Chaucer, actually. Um, that there's, you know, this Theban opium that's coming from Egypt. It's just, you know, really, really great stuff. It's the best. It's the best. <laughs> and that's also what, what appears in Bujangamanic as well. And the door guardian says, wow, you're just like opium. Wow, you're amazing. Um, which is kind of good. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it doesn't have that moralizing thing that we have now. <laughs> nope, nope. Um, so we've got stuff coming from New Guinea in there. As I mentioned, we've got this Masoi bark that's coming from New Guinea. So we can kind of extend these interactions across Afro-Eurasia all the way to New Guinea. Mm -hmm. We've got loads of Chinese stuff in there. You've got loads of stuff from India in there. You've got a few things from the Mediterranean, in particular a thing called uh, manjakani, which is a kind of oak gall powder. So oak galls were obviously used for making ink in the Middle East and in Europe. In India and in Southeast Asia, they were used medicinally. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got stuff that's actually coming from the Mediterranean to Southeast Asia that's described in Bujangamanic and rose water as well. That's also probably coming from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So just looking at this poem, at this text, we've got this much wider world, but it's a world that ends very much at the boundaries of Afro-Eurasia. And I think that that's a much more productive way of looking at the Middle Ages in general, extending the concept of the Middle Ages to Afro-Eurasia, a whole hemisphere, but not really global. Right. I think that would be a, a kind of more productive and more interesting way of looking at it. So those are kind of my two objections, really, to the, the whole global Middle Ages thing. So I don't think it's serious about, or at least a lot of the people who use this term, are not really serious about engaging with texts in other languages, learning those languages, promoting the study of them, and looking at the world from their perspective. And also, you know, there is a kind of limit there, and that it, it's not really an appropriate term. I think it's if like, you knew one thing about the Middle Ages, if you had to know only one thing, it would probably be that the world was not a globe in that period mm -hmm. that would be the key thing to know. That's how we understand early modernity is as the world coming together as a globe for the first time. Right. Right. That's my view. Yeah. And the term, the term that you used or that I've seen you use is actually the hemispheric middle ages. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, just because global, well, okay. It's not, I'll <laughs> do, you know, Afro-Eurasian middle ages, medieval Afro-Eurasia. I don't really mind what term we use particularly, yeah. but uh, that framing I think is. But the framing of it. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's, um, that's really good. Yeah. We have in our collection, I keep saying that in our collection, in my employer's collection, mm -hmm. um, I mentioned that we have these, this Thai manuscripts, which I don't, I don't really work with them. Maybe because I, I, I do have a very codicological focus in terms of the kind of work that I do. So mm -hmm. I do, I do work a lot with our, um, I'm not even sure what to call them, but our, our collections from the Middle East. So we have a lot of uh, Persian and mostly Arabic manuscripts, um, which are similar in, constri in physical construction to European manuscripts in terms of how they're made. Um, but we don't, we don't actually have a curator on staff who speaks these languages. Uh, we had some cataloging work done. And so we brought somebody in to do the cataloging work. And then she has, you know, had to go to get another job because that was temporary. And uh -huh. now we're kind of like, <laughs> I want to work with them. I want to, I want to showcase them the same way that I showcase the, uh, our European manuscript. And it's not like I read Latin, you know, natively or anything like that. Mm. It's just, there's something about the, you know, 
the difficulty in the language. And I think, you know, the more people I talk to about this, the more I think I should probably just like learn Arabic, which actually feels like a huge thing, but people do mm. it. And it people would be, do it. You know, yeah. yeah. It would really help me, you know, with working with these materials that I want to share with people. I think Arabic is, is one of the languages that I'm, I've tried several times to get into. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't say what it should say. I don't know. There's something about the script <laughs> being an abjad in the, in the real sense. Like they just don't put the vowels in there. And I want the vowels. Yeah, they, they, don't. <laughs> they don't. For me, that's yeah. a real stumbling block. Something like Old Sundanese, the script that they use, or Old Javanese, the scripts that they use in these languages are quite precise. They tell you, you know, every sound that's in the thing. Well, actually, in Old Sundanese, they very often don't represent final nasals mm -hmm. uh, or ones before other consonants. So we don't often know if it's lupang or lumpang or something like this. But, okay, apart from that, pretty easy to read. For something like Arabic, I just find kind of frustrating. But I know what all the characters are, but then I don't know what the word is because my Arabic is not good enough. So I don't know if that's a great place to start, but obviously it's a place that a lot of people do start. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, being able to, at least I'm, I'm learning, I, I've learned a little bit of pale, paleographical, so I can sort of tell the difference between different scripts, which in and of itself is useful because that can tell you where, you know, where and when things were, things were yeah, written. So sure. that's a start. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, the, I don't think there should be a huge amount of pressure on people to, to learn non-European languages. It would just be nice if there was more incorporation of that stuff generally in the academy. Um, yeah. And I don't know, the way things are going money-wise, jobs-wise, Yeah, it's not looking good for anybody. I don't think this is a, you know, an Asian studies problem or something like that. Mm -hmm. so, um, I'm obviously not employed by a university at the moment, so... I'm not particularly looking for a job in university, but uh, definitely there, there aren't any. If I were looking, then yeah. I wouldn't find anything. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's really tough right now for, for most everybody working in academia. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. So. Yes. Yeah. So if you're not looking for an academic job, what yeah. um, what are you what are you thinking about doing, or what uh, are you? If you don't have to answer that question, it's, it's kind of personal if you don't or i can edit it out or um well i didn't get funding for my my phd which i think i don't know if leiden university regrets that but obviously it doesn't look very good if um you know you got someone who wins a major prize mm -hmm. and you didn't actually pay them um but okay anyway uh i don't know why i wasn't funded but uh, it's kind of a long story mm -hmm. in that way and i'd moved to the netherlands with my wife who isn't european uh, so getting a visa in general is kind of difficult. So oh, yeah. we'd moved there. I wanted to do a master's degree and then a PhD. After we'd moved, we weren't exactly likely to move somewhere else. So I thought, well, I'll just stick it out, do the PhD. Okay, it's not funded, but I'll support myself by teaching English, which is what I did. And I had been doing before I moved to the Netherlands. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm sort of teaching English, doing a bit of writing, proofreading, editing, that sort of thing, getting by. Well, thank you so much for um sharing your knowledge and i learned i feel like i learned a lot which is great yeah, <laughs> yeah so rambling away wittering on about uh, ascetics and stuff yep that was really fun okay oh, so thank you you're welcome
Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.